Good morning, Gregory House, South and North. Today we're going to start a two-week, uh, a two-part series, which I've entitled The Theology of Scripture. But really what we're going to do in talking about Scripture is we're going to, we're going to explore the theological connections, the, the metrics, if you will, of the relationship between Holy Scripture, Holy Son, the Word of God, Holy Spirit, and Holy Church. And so we're going to situate a theology of Holy Scripture in its native context. And so uh, with the view of getting started to that, let me pray and off we will go. Pray with me if you would. The Lord be with you. Holy Father, we come to you in the strong, sure name of your blessed Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and we commit ourselves to his high priestly hands. And Lord Jesus, we ask that you'd bear us up into the bosom of the Father, that you would include us uh, and envelope us in the love of the Father and the fellowship of the Spirit. We pray that um, you would open up your knowing of the Father to us and that you would um, uh, continue to conform us to yourself in so doing. We praise you and we joyfully confess that all honor and glory and might and power is yours and we ask that you'd rid us of any encumbrance that would um, steal our joy, steal our peace, and we pray that you would um, bring us into the, uh, the fullness of knowledge of you, which is life eternal itself. We ask this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Let's start off right here. You see where, where I'm in the notes, Word of God. <clears throat> Let's start talking about Word of God. And Word of God, right off the bat, let's make sure that we're getting is Word of God incarnate, ultimately incarnate, right? Word of God, who is the Son, the eternal Son, and Word of God, which is Holy Scripture. Let me start with a, with a quote from Calvin. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use Calvin a bit here because his theology of Holy Scripture is... <laughs> Magnificent, just magnificent. He says this Holy men and women of old, patriarchs, matriarchs, that's what he's talking about. Holy men and women of old knew God only by beholding him in his son. That might sound strange to us. Holy men and women of old, patriarchs, matriarchs, knew God only by beholding him in his son. God has never manifested himself to us in any other way than through his son. That is, who is the sole wisdom and light and truth of God. Now, this is just bedrock for Reformation theology and for what we call evangelical Catholicity, what you prize that the triune God of the gospel reveals himself to us and gives himself to us. So revelation isn't just um, information, right? It's, it's God's self-disclosure, which is God's self-communication, right? He comes to possess us and actually bind us in the truth. This happens in and through the Son, through the Son, because he alone mediates God to us. There's one mediator between God and man, that is the Son. That's what Calvin's getting at. And in the Son, because in Him, because He is Himself God, let's say that, one with the Father and the Spirit, in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. <clears throat> Here we're talking about not yet bodily, right? The whole fullness of deity dwells in the Son. So for the Son to manifest God to us is for us to know 
God. Not an aspect of God, but God. I'll give you a couple texts here just to be thinking about this. Paul says there's one mediator. There's one God. There's one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. But there's one mediator. When does this mediation start? Paul's talking specifically here about the incarnation or post-incarnational realities. But where does the mediation of the second person of the Trinity start? As soon as God opens up his inner triune life to us in, in creation, right? God creates by him and through him and for him. He is the word, the eternal word, John tells us. And that means he's God's self-expression, right? That eternal word who's ever been in the bosom of the Father, resounding in the depths of God's very being. All of our dealings with God <clears throat> happen in and through him. That's Calvin's point. That's, that's the first point we want to make about a theology of Scripture. That's really important that we get that. There's one mediator between God. That means, right, and, and when we get sloppy here, the church gets really sloppy here, there's one mediator between God and man. That means it's not your gray matter, right? It's not your frontal cortex. It's not scripture. It's not the church. It's not creation. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, right? To know him and his mediation illumines all those things and sets them in the context in which they ought to be. So they're blessing to us. There's one mediator between God and man. And I just want, I want you to see this, right? Because Calvin might strike you as odd. You know, this has always been the case for the patriarchs and the matriarchs, that God reveals himself through his son and deals with us through his son. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. For I do not want you to be unaware that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. He's talking about the realities of the Exodus. And all were baptized into Moses, into the cloud and into the sea. They all drank the same spiritual food, right? He's getting at sacramental realities, baptism and bread and cup. <clears throat> and they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from that spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ, right? Here, the pre-incarnate mediator, the Messiah. Back to Calvin's point. Holy men of old knew God by beholding him and his son. Let me flip my page over here. The prophets of old, 1 Peter 1, prophesied, right, inquiring according to the spirit of Christ at work in them, says, says 1 Peter, right? Who is um, uh, bearing upon the prophets of old the spirit of Christ? The one who is the word, the word that came to Isaiah. <laughs> Right? The word, the self-expression of God. You search the scriptures, says our Lord Jesus to the Pharisees. You search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness of me. Right? And we could, boy, we could just go on and on about it, the way scripture talks there. The end of the law, Romans 10, is Christ on Emmaus Road. Right? And the law and the prophets bear witness of me. Right? The Mount of Transfiguration is Elijah and Moses. The law and the prophets both beholding the Son. Calvin's point. First thing we want to really talk about when we talk about Word of God. The Word of God is the second person of the Trinity who has, as soon as God opens up to us relationally, He is the mediator. At the same time, it's bedrock for this evangelical Catholicity of ours that when Scripture speaks, God speaks. 
right? And this is personal address, not God, you know, speaking to hear his own voice or God speaking abstractly into the cosmos. God speaks to us for our immediate and eternal benefit. He does that. Our own BCP, Catechism, Book of Common Prayer, talks like this. Scripture is word of God because we hear the very voice of God in Scripture. And we'll get at what this means, but the living, active voice. Not just a factually true, you know, well-preserved record of when God used to speak a long time ago. Living, active voice. We hear the voice of God. And part of our Christian formation is listening, right, so that we learn to hear. We learn to hear. We learn to hear the voice of God because that voice comes to us, right? It doesn't pierce the silence. There's a cacophony of voices that we're hearing. God speaks to us. We hear the voice of God in Scripture. The Reformation cries right here, solus Christus, Christ alone, and solus scriptura, Scripture alone, aren't mutually exclusive, but they're intimately related here. What we want to get at is the sacramental union, right, um, between Word of God, who is the second person of the Trinity, and Word of God, who is the Bible. We want to make the differentiations we need to and the relationships we need to. But here, when you think about Solus, solus Christus and Sola Scriptura, what we're not saying is Sola Christus, right? Sola Scriptura. Not only or alone in the sense that these would be mutually exclusive. And by the way, this happens all the time in theology. If you're a hipster theologian, right, I know lots of them, it's the, the perception is a high and holy theology of, of the incarnate Lord Jesus Christ such that any, any desire to really lay fast to a theology of Scripture seems fundamentalist, right? A real reticence. It's a solo Christus, right? Over and against Scripture. Or a type of biblicist understanding, right? The Bible, um, but the Bible in the absence of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible in place, right? Functionally speaking, in place of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want both of these together, right? We're talking about the relationship here. So this begs the question, what's the relationship? What's the theological connection between the Word of God, who is the second person of the Trinity, and the Word of God, who is Scripture? That phrase, Word of God, is predicated right, to both. God the Son, Holy Scripture. What are some of the differentiations we need to make and the connections we need to make? Well, first of all, we want to we see the obvious one, right? Um, the second person of the Trinity is not a book. Really important, right? The second person of the Trinity is eternal, self-existent, God Almighty. Scripture is very much a creaturely reality. Scripture has a beginning. And by the way, Scripture has an end, right? When, when, when the Bible talks about the Word of God that will endure forever, our sermon just last Sunday, we heard, heaven and earth will pass away, but the Word of God will not. You don't want to immediately reduce that just to Scripture. We won't be, we won't be doing Bible studies in the new heavens and new earth when, when the fullness of reality breaks open. Scripture is sacramental, right? And it's, it's got a provisionality there. That's not to think low of Scripture. That's to think scripturally about Scripture, right? Scripture isn't possessed of deity. It's not a, a fourth thing in God's triune life. <clears throat> At the same time, what's the connection the, the big connection we want to make here is that 
our Lord seizes upon Holy Scripture, superintends human authors so that in human authorship we hear the living voice of God, right? Luther talks like this. He says, if you want to know the babe, you go to the manger, right? If you want to know, you need to know where to search in order to find. If you want to hear the living voice, you don't, you don't search, um, you don't wander about and look all over the place and hope, you know, const- you know um, serendipitously you find the word of God. He says, you go right, you betake yourself to the manger. Now, when you get there, you make sure that you don't make the mistake of taking the babe out, laying the babe on the ground, picking up the manger and cradling the manger, right? My Lord and my God. If you want to find the babe, you go to the manger. The job of the manger is to hold the babe, right? What we want to say here uh, is something like, God is known, back to Calvin, God is known as he reveals himself in the Son. Knowledge of God, true knowledge of God is had in the Son, and true acquaintance with the Son is had in spirit-vivified acquaintance with Holy Scripture. Both are word of God in these ways. So that, right, at one and the same time, you want to make a differentiation so you can, you can discern um, the second person of the Trinity, um, the one and only mediator from the book, but you never want to make a, a, a contradiction or an opposition there so that you're opposing him to that word that bespeaks him. Does that make sense? We might say something like this. Um, to honor, obey, exalt Jesus Christ is to love Holy Scripture. To demean and diminish Holy Scripture is to demean and diminish the Lord of Holy Scripture. Right? There's no opposition to me being there, but that's the theological connect- connection we want to make sure we have there. Kate, did you want to say something? Anybody? Matt? Now let's, let's, let's take a step back then. Let's go back and talk a little bit about um, how God has communicated, word of God, how God has communicated with respect to um, the necessity of scripture in the life of the church. Let's do that. So let's go back and talk about patriarchs and matriarchs a little bit and in scripturation that comes to be. Well, point two there in your notes. Patriarchs, matriarchs did not have scripture, and yet they knew God, right? Um, The one with whom they had to do, second person trinity, the word eternal, they knew God. They did not yet have scripture. After them, once inscripturation occurs, scripture is essential to our knowing of God. We want to, let's highlight both of those and let's, let's parse those out a little bit. Word of God, in this sense, the Word of God who is the Son is necessarily prior to Scripture. Not only chronologically, right, but hierarchically. He is the One, right? By the way, then, he's the, the end of Scripture is Jesus Christ. That's the one we're always looking for. Scripture's never an end in itself. Again, a sacramental reality. The Word of God is necessarily prior to Scripture in so much that our forebears were the beneficiaries of God's address prior to any inscripturation. Now, you know, have in your mind Abraham, Sarah, Moses, Noah, Job, so on and so forth. The word of God, therefore, word of God, that phrase, right, that reality, never merely 
equated or reduced to scripture, right? However, after inscripturation, now we want to make that theological connection. We're always testing and we're always norming any claim to word of God by scripture. Let me make a couple, let me make a couple um, observations here and you guys talk with me as you, as you feel you want to. God reveals himself to individuals prior to inscripturation, right? Think matriarchs and patriarchs. God reveals himself to individuals in diverse ways and those remain mystery. In other words, the act of that, the manner of that, the way this is authenticated, you can't quite get behind it. Think, think with me about burning bush, right? God speaks to Moses in a burning bush that isn't consumed by flame, right? Mystery. How that happens and how that's authenticated to Moses, you can't quite get behind. You can't domesticate that, you can't tame that. Think about pillar of smoke and flame, right? Exodus, prior to inscripturation. There's no Old Testament, there's no Bible. Job in the whirlwind, right? God speaks to Job in Job 38. God, in, God confronts Job out of the whirlwind. Mystery, diverse ways, mystery. Elisha, right, in the cleft of the rock. God does that. Now the truth, I'm over on the next page of your notes. The truth of God, as God does that, is engraved upon their hearts. Think, think engraved as opposed to some ephemeral, mere epiphany or a eureka moment. Not a momentary flash, but engraved, right? God seizes upon their, seizes upon their hearts. Moses didn't go away from the burning bush and go, go back to Jethro and his wife that night and say, the weirdest thing happened. I have no idea what it meant or who spoke to me or anything like that or if that was even real. He's galvanized there. Does that make sense? Galvanized there. <clears throat> They're convinced of the truth of God. In that revelation, God seizes upon them and there's convincing, convicting, assuring power there. They know that they're, possess that they're possessed of certainty concerning the truth of the one who speaks to them as they're possessed by that one and included in the truth. And think here, think here about everything we want to say about scripture, everything you want to say about theology. We're not trying to master and domesticate truth from the outside. We're actually inhabiting the truth. We're participating in the truth. You know the truth from the inside. You never know the truth from the outsider. In other words, you might say, you know God by faith and discipleship, or you don't know God at all, right? You don't sit back at distance and try to parse God out, deconstruct God. You don't do that. They're included in the truth, and they know it. God comes to Abraham and says, follow me, right? Now, goodness, follow you where? You'll see. For how long? You'll see. A long time. Why? Well, I'm going to make you the father of multitudes. Oh, by the way, I'm impotent. My wife's barren. We're very old. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm very well situated in life. It's not easy to leave. Get your stuff and let's go. There's convicting, convincing power here. That, that takes a lot, right? He doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't get up from that event and say, um, I'm not sure what happened. It could, have been, it could have been what I ate last night. It could have been a dream. I'm not sure. Right? There's convicting, convincing power. They're included in this truth. They understand the meaning of God's revelation. I'm on to point four. God acts, God interprets that act, right? God acts and he interprets that act. They understand the meaning of God's revelation so that 
there's no obscurantism here. There's, there's no mysticism in the sense of vagueness, right? It's not an encounter with God that has no content. Nor is it just, right, this kind of like subcognitive sentimentalism. Nothing like that. God acts as God addresses matriarchs and patriarchs. God acts and God interprets that act and there's clarity there. And then here, this point five, they know who has addressed them. They're utterly clear of that. They're quite aware that this revelation is from God by God, right? That God is the origin of this revelation. That is the case. Kelvin makes these points in his magnificent theology of scripture. He says, all of these things are true of the matriarchs and patriarchs. The word of God that comes even prior to inscripturation. All of those things are true. In the fullness of time now, these are given to us and committed to us in the form of Holy Scripture. Now, what's the connection for us as we think about Scripture? What's the connection there in terms of how God has acted and how God acts? He, Calvin makes this point. It's a wonderful one. He says points two through five there that we just looked at. He says they're operative today every time that we betake ourselves and faith and hope and love to Holy Scripture. And Scripture illuminates us, vivifies, right, the text of Scripture to acquaint us with the person of Jesus Christ. He says two through five are operative today. That's what we should be thinking about as we handle Scripture personally and in the life of the church. That the truth of God's engraved upon our hearts, that this isn't an ephemeral sense, but a deep and abiding thing, that with our being addressed personally by word of God, living active word of God. We're convinced of the truth of God. We're possessed of assurance and certainty that we are actually included in the truth. We're inhabiting the truth. We're not on the outside or looking through a window at something. We're possessed of the truth. And as God speaks, there's clarifying power there in the address of God. We know who has addressed us. Kelvin says every time we use scripture, all of these are the case. All of these are the case. Normative in the life of of the church and normative to a theology of scripture. I give you this quote. I love it. It's from my doctor father. He says, scripture unfailingly accomplishes that for which it is given. Because without fail, as often as it is read, we could say preached, we could say used, contemplated on, used in the life of of the church and the life of faith. The Father sends the promised spirit and the Son looms before us to seize and save and sustain. Scripture does what Scripture ought do infallibly in this case, which is an ever-renewed encounter with the living, active Word, who is the end of Scripture. Scripture serves the end of acquaintance with the living Word. All of those things are operative today. All of those things are just true of the way God has worked right from the beginning with patriarchs and matriarchs. Now he says point one's inoperative today. Remember point one, God works in diverse ways that remain mystery. You can't quite get behind them, right? Um, That He says that's inoperative today in the sense that you and I are going around looking all over the place um, for where God might speak to us. Right. Now we know, right, we've got the manger. If you want to have a living encounter with the babe, you go to the manger. 
We're not looking, we're not looking at burning bushes. We're not looking for bushes to light into flame. Now, we want to make a couple caveats here. What that doesn't mean with Scripture is this. It doesn't mean that God is somehow encapsulated, captive to Scripture, right? God's free in his sovereign love to speak as he will. And John Wesley once says wonderfully, he says, you know, if God wants to, he can speak through a dead dog. Point being, right, when you're walking along an 18th century road and you see a dog ran over by a carriage, I think this is part of his own experience, um, you say, ooh, life is short, death is near, repent, right? And he's um, deeply convicted of that. He says he's had an encounter with God in that sense. God can speak to us any way God chooses. But there's never any promise bound there, and we shouldn't be running around looking for dead dogs and asking God to speak to us in that context, right? That's not the point. But Scripture is in a, you know, we don't have God in a, in a genie bottle with Scripture. That's not the point, right? Because he's the Lord of Scripture, right? Scripture is not the Lord of him. He's the Lord of Scripture. <clears throat> same time, at the same time, or part of this, because God speaks through Scripture, uh, and we should always go there, that's the, that's, the, that's the cradle in which we find the babe. What we don't do, then, is try to infer or deduce God from Scripture. Does that make sense? We don't, by the way, that's a huge issue in, in modern theological studies. You don't infer or deduce God from Scripture, like, like again, God's trapped somehow, and if you just have all the right historical, semantic, linguistic tools, and you can, you know, as a biblical technician, you can carve out propositional truths from Scripture. That's a, that's a really bad doctrine of Scripture. Really bad. To whatever extent, right, even the most noble effort to infer God from Scripture, to conclude God from Scripture, is a tacit denial that God speaks in Scripture. Right? Um, even if you have a relatively high view of scripture, but you're approaching scripture like that, it's an ancient artifact, right? It's a really wonderful ancient artifact that is not living and active and powerful, right? It comes to us maybe beautiful, right? Maybe highly valued, but dead. It's a dead thing. It's a, it's a butterfly pinned to a cork board in a museum. Does that make sense? And then we'd say here, point six. Point six, this truth is committed to us in writing in the form of scripture. Point six is normative today. Points two through five, operative today. Point, point one, inoperative. Point six, normative today in that ongoing inscripturation, ongoing inscripturation isn't necessary because what we have here in Holy Scripture is that singular, singular, sufficient, rule, canon, right, measuring device for the church's faith and life. Scripture is the canon by which the church conforms in faith and life, because Scripture is the living and active word of the church's living and active Lord. <clears throat> now, let's, let's parse that out. Let's talk about that for just a couple of minutes. What are we saying? All voices, then, must be tested by Scripture, right? Voices past, voices present, voices internal. We've, had, we've got running dialogue with ourselves, right? Voices external, 
friends, foes, the church, the world, all of these things now are tested, normed by Holy Scripture. Another way of saying this is simply to say, Scripture is Holy Scripture, right? If we don't get that, or to the extent we don't, and by the way, boy, oh boy, um, we're wrestling with that all the time, then what Scripture is, if it's, if it's not that, how it tends to work in the church, is Scripture is a provisional word that is constantly normed by culture. It's, it's not holy, right? It's not holy other. It's not unique in that sense. It settles down into culture, and culture is constantly the canon of Scripture, and therefore culture is ultimately the canon of Christian faith and life. Does that make sense? To say that Scripture is holy Scripture is to say that Scripture's got a singularity and a sufficiency because this is the living, acting word of the living act of God. And in that sense, he's always like himself, right? He's not evolving, he's not developing, and he doesn't have a personality dissociative disorder either. Yeah. Oh, we need a mic, yeah. Is it on? Okay. Um, so then there, you know, there are parts of scripture where, like for example, um, in the conquest narratives, when God commands Israel, can you hear me? Is this better? Yeah, I talk? better. Okay. So there are some parts of scriptures, like in the conquest narratives, where God uh, commands Israel to go into a city and kill every man, woman, child, beast. And when the reader finishes and says, this is the word of God, I have a hard time saying, thanks be to God. <laughs> so, and, and, and that's just me. I mean, like I've read some other, um, you know, uh, womanist theologians who have other problems with parts of scripture that didn't immediately occur to me as offensive um, and, uh, because of my own social location. So, um, yeah, what do we do with these different parts of scripture that seem to present a God that causes a lot of problems with um, what we feel like we know of God and, and Jesus Christ? In Jesus Christ, I see kind of a God who ends, who, whose violent death ends all violence and is calling us into being a community of nonviolence. And then I look at passages uh, like the conquest narratives that conflict with that. And I'm wondering, like, gosh, how do I, how do I deal with that tension mm -hmm. while also wanting to affirm that all of Scripture mm -hmm. belongs to God? Just feels like a very pastoral question that comes up a lot for me and, and for others. Yeah, for sure. Okay, gosh, that's a big one. But let's say something like this. So, for instance, how we, how we sometimes tend to operate there is, you know, the God of the conquest, the God of the Old Testament is um, just a little bit more nasty. <laughs> Than the God of Jesus, gentle and lowly, right? And then you read the Apocalypse, right? The Revelation. Who's the one who gets into the wine press, right? Who's the one who comes to judge? The one who comes to conquer and defeat? It's actually the Lord Jesus Christ, right? It's that one. So I think that what, what, where we're at in moderns, you know, we come about this. Matt, you and I have talked about this in the, in the past, right? Moderns, uh, moderns have a real sense in which we've come of age. And we tend to look back not only at, at ancient past as something crude, but I mean like our grandparents, right? And so <clears throat> it's hard for us to hear the Word of God here in ways that disrupt and overturn all kinds of things, right? We talked the other day about our baptismal identity that says there's no Jew and no Greek. There's no male. There's no female. Um, there's no free and there's no slave. So, so things of ethnicity, things of sex, things of class, real, right? And a sense in which they can be affirmed and celebrated, they can never be an identity. 
we're addicted to that in our culture, right? So that, that too, right? That's a, that's a thing that comes and says, you cannot form an identity that you would call womanist, right? right? You can need to repent of that. <clears throat> and so this is one instance of many in which we need to hear the word of God and say, I think I know what it means when, when Jeremiah says the word of God's a hammer, right? Where the word of God, not only does it uproot, it plucks, then, then it plants and God prunes. The word of God does all of these things. And part of the liturgy is to say, thanks be to God, <laughs> rather than thanks be to God for what I heard last week, but not this week. That one, was, that one was hard. This one comports with who I think God ought be. This one strikes me as I don't think God maybe ought be that way. Or in my own culture, I might think if, 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 if you know, an ancient Pharisee thought that they outmoralized God, moderns tend to think that we outlove God. Have you guys noticed that? We think that we are much more loving than God is in our culture. And so I just say that's one of those areas where you say, man, you got to struggle and wrestle with the word of with the word of God, but I think one of the one of the you know as someone who teaches apologetics, one of the um, ill-advised tacks is to try to explain away and make concessions and embarrassingly do that, right? So, for instance, even um, by the way, that's not pastorally to say, oh, <laughs> right, this is twisting my guts. It ought to do that. Um, Lord, teach us to pray, right? Thy kingdom come, thy kingdom come. How does that kingdom come? Through judgment. And it comes by, it, by the way, it comes through cataclysmic, right? Epochal judgment. Our Lord Jesus says, pray this, right? And, and pray it knowingly. This is what we're praying. Lord, come and judge the earth. Lord, come and judge the earth. I think one of the things that we, that we need to do then as we encounter and we hear and we're included in the truth is saying, um, there's a sense in which we've gone rogue, in which we, you know, when we think about the world, um, we often side with the world over and against the Lord. <laughs> Does that make sense? And what our Lord's doing is calling us back and settling us in uh, what it means to view the world as he would. And, and, there's, and, there's a, and there's a death and resurrection there, right? There's deep, like, overturning of all kinds of assumptions. Think about the apostles for a minute. Think about... Um, some of the things you see there. Right away you see um, Nathaniel. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You see at every major point in our Lord's ministry, his, not his foes, his friends saying, you can't be that, you cannot be that. Baptize me, John. No way, <laughs> right? Now it's time for me to go to, to Jerusalem and be crucified. No, says Peter. By the, and Peter takes him aside and starts to rebuke him. Wash my feet or let me wash your feet. You'll never wash my feet, right? Um, when are you going to restore the kingdom? All of these things, they're issues that, that we're, we're just, we're getting, uh, our assumptions are getting overturned all the time. So I think that one of the things that we need, the real hard work there, is sitting in Holy Scripture and all of its strangeness and all of its uncomfortability and refusing to make it a... Um, like a precious moments type of a therapeutic text for us. And sitting in the tension of that, because I don't, I don't think we're ever gonna resolve that tension. We're never, gonna, we're never gonna do that. We're gonna say, oh dear, right, oh dear. Um, and maybe even do something like uh, what Abraham does 
when, when his visitation, when the Lord says, I'm going to take out Sodom and Gomorrah. And he starts to engage in that, that type of wrangling with the Lord. Um, I think the Lord will allow that, right? He allows that kind of wrestling. You read the Psalms, right? He allows that kind of wrestling. But the point is, ultimately, what we're doing is saying, I, I, want, to, I want to come to the point where I can say, your judgments are good and beautiful. And so I'm, I'm not harboring that, that sense that maybe, just maybe, you might be a monster, which is part of, part of that kind of broken hermeneutic we have as people that live east of Eden, <clears throat> but as moderns. That's a long response, but does that make sense? I think that's, um, we want to we really, really move away from trying to explain away or domesticate Holy Scripture in all of those ways. <clears throat> Let's talk about the relationship of Holy Scripture to Holy Spirit, right? The end of Scripture is living acquaintance with the Son. What is the relationship, the theological relationship of Holy Spirit to Holy Scripture? Let's, let's start by saying this, and we'll parse it out. Scripture is the substance, and I don't over-ontologize that. Scripture is the substance in the sense of being the solidity and the content of the Spirit. The Spirit is the power, right? The efficacy, the action, the dynamism of Holy Scripture. What we're getting at here is what our evangelical Catholicity would call a doctrine of word and spirit. Word and spirit. Word and spirit go together. That's the most natural thing. And there's, there's a mutuality and a mutual understanding and, and hermeneutic that goes there between Holy Spirit and Holy Scripture. <clears throat> Here, think again. Union with distinction, not division or not separation. What happens, by the way? Let's think about that. What happens when you pull apart, as it were, functionally, pull apart spirit from Scripture. Who is, it? Who is the Holy Spirit, and how would I discern the Spirit's movement and action apart from Holy Scripture? What does the Spirit become like apart from Scripture? Vague, amorphous, right? Um, impersonal. Star Wars-ish, right? The Force. Now think about some of the ways we do this. The zeitgeist, right? If you were living in 18th, 19th century Germany, um, uh, you might say the, 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 the spirit of this age, the zeitgeist, right, is um, conflated with or even confused with the movement of God. What is the movement of God bringing about? Nazism. Hitlerism, whoa, right? And so you can easily, by the way, you can easily see this in our, in our own culture, tying the cultural movements to the movement of God, not being able to discern that, right? Um, God is still speaking is something you'll see lots if you go downtown um, on the outside of churches with rainbows. I think what that means is um, God is still speaking, but he's speaking in a way over and against and contrary to the way God has spoken, right? The Spirit's moving, but the Spirit's moving in a way that's apart from Holy Scripture. Or just your garden variety Christian silliness, right? God told me you should go on a date with me, right? Way, way, things, of, of if you're not careful, right? Being sloppy, and by the way, manipulative there. You're not going to grieve and clench and argue with the Spirit of God, are you? 
you gotta be really careful with that. We norm and we test the movement of the Spirit according to Scripture because the Spirit is the divine author of Scripture. And the Spirit doesn't speak with forked tongue. The Spirit doesn't have multiple personalities. The Spirit is as God is, always and ever like himself. What happens if we take, if we, as it were, operatively, we, we take Scripture and Spirit apart? Right? There's forms of evangelical thinking that would say, you know, the Spirit's job was to give us Scripture. And when the Spirit gave us Scripture, he went into, he's Spirit Emeritus now. He went into semi-retirement. <clears throat> His job is to give me this book. Now that I have the book, I don't need the Spirit. And I'm actually a little bit afraid of the Spirit anyway. Right? You guys, you know, you, you've, you've heard the old adages, right? Um, the Holy Trinity is Father, Son, and Scripture. Right? Not Father, Son, and Spirit. What happens when we pull Scripture apart from Spirit, keep Scripture, get rid of Spirit? Can you have a good doctrine of Scripture without Spirit? Can you have a biblical doctrine of Scripture without Spirit? Does that make sense? Changes the whole face of the Christian life for sure. For sure. We're never trying to pull apart, um, but always see as together this. The Spirit, the Scripture, Scripture is the substance, the lingua franca, if you will, the common language of the Spirit. Spirit is the power of Scripture. Scripture has no inherent power in itself. Caleb, you want to talk? Yeah, I just had a question about um, what you're talking about and just the separation of the Spirit from Scripture. And, and maybe I was just wondering if this is kind of a result of this is, is the idea that anyone <clears throat> can read and understand Scripture <clears throat> apart from the presence of the Spirit. So like um, sometimes I'll hear Christians say, you know, <clears throat> things like, well, you know, an unbeliever can read Scripture and and they can understand scripture just as clearly as I can. And like that for me automatically is like, okay, well, you know, what, what do you think is, what are you trying to understand from scripture? If it's yeah. just the historical fact of it or, or things like that. Would you say that that's one example of, um, of that separation and yep. something that Christians should avoid? Yeah, it, and we'll talk about that a little bit more next week. It's a fantastic question because what that's doing, not only is it pulling, um, it's removing that idea of distinction without separation or contradiction, right? It's removing that, not, not only from a conversation, pneumatology, the spirit, but from ecclesiology. Is, is scripture the church's book, right? She's the proper custodian of that, or is scripture just this publicly verifiable document that you just throw out into the world, right? And anybody can read scripture. Um, there's a, there's a, a disposition, right? Um, of reading scripture that's necessary. There's an illumination of scripture that's, that's necessary, most definitely. So we, when we talk about a theology, let's say of the perspicuity, you know, the clarity of scripture, what does that mean? A, it doesn't mean that scripture is always easy to mass points, not always easy. By the way, that means when you understand scripture, it's not always easy, right? That's part of the problem. Um, but also the issue that there's, there's disposition there. There's a disposition um, that, must, that must be there. In other words, right, Jesus talking to the Pharisees, John 7, he says, if you want to know if what I say is from my Father, 
follow me. You know in following me, but if you will not follow me, you cannot know this. You cannot know this. You must commit. <clears throat> There's no amount of deliberation, right, that, that, that gets us to commitment and discipleship. You know in discipleship you have to commit. If you want to know, follow. But if you won't follow, you can't know. It's back to faith-seeking understanding and, and all of that. So scripture is in a public document that's publicly verifiable. And that goes to a bigger epistemological question. You guys think about this. It, surely you've thought, you've, you've thought this. If my, you know, unbelieving, you know, sibling or, you know, parent or something like that, if they could just be with Jesus like the disciples were, surely they'd believe, right? If, if you could be at the cross on the first Good, you know, on the first good Friday, surely, right, um, the Lord, the love of God would just melt your hearts. Is that, is that the way you read that in Scripture? Can you see Jesus, touch Jesus, hear Jesus, and say, Beelzebul? Right? Flesh and blood didn't teach you this, right? <clears throat> All of the ways in which we think, and they're good, by the way, in and of themselves and in their own domain, they're good, historical analysis and philosophical analysis and, you know, the scientific method, they're great. But they in the, of themselves do not, open up, right, knowledge of God to us. They don't do that. And so that's part of, you know, us thinking about what does it mean for, for Scripture to be the church's book, right? So she's custodian of Scripture. She's not Lord of Scripture either, right? Um, and for us to maintain that distinction, right, um, distinction without division. And what I mean, we'll get to that next week, but what I mean by that is when the church speaks, but the church is capable of speaking in some ways that are pretty startling, right? We'll talk about that next week. Um, this doesn't mean that wherever the church speaks, God speaks. Wherever Scripture speaks in the life of the church, right, the, the, the Lord and the head, right, is operating um, for the body, not apart from the body, but distinct, always that. Scripture is the church's book, um, not for her to lord over, um, but for her to be custodian of, but not the world's book. Let's talk about this a little bit. Scripture, the substance, the lingua franca, the common language of the Spirit. Think with me about this. Scripture is the creation, if you will, the product. It's a little crude, but you get my point. Of the Spirit's inspiration and superintendence. The Spirit's action upon human authors brings about Holy Scripture. Right. I give you a couple of texts here, but you know them. All scripture, says 2 Timothy 3, is graphe, by the way, word of God, but it's theopneustos, it's expired, it's breathed out by God. Right? Or from 2 Peter 1, that human authors are carried along by the Spirit in the production of scripture. Think about wind and sails, right? They're carried along. Now, when you read scripture and you think about the way in which that's the case, you see lots of different um, ways in which this comes to be. You see Jeremiah, right? Jeremiah. Whew. Um, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, right? Write this down. Um, and then you look at a text like uh, the first opening verses of Luke's gospel. You see something much, much different. Let me read it to you. I want to show you this. If you have scripture with you, follow me. Luke's gospel starts like this. 
picking up in verse 1, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account of you, uh, for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. I've undertaken a long process, says Luke, of um, checking with eyewitnesses, of following up on sources pertaining to the words and deeds of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've undertaken a piece of apostolic journalism, in other words, right? That, that sounds a lot different than Jeremiah, right? And in this process, the, su the Spirit superintends human authors to bring about Word of God. So in different ways and circumstances, the Spirit superintends human authors to the end that their words are God's words, right? The words of Moses, Word of God. Word of Isaiah, Word of God. Word of John, Word of Paul, Word of God. Interestingly, you, you watch how Jesus handles Scripture. He'll often do that, right? Hasn't God said from the beginning that for this reason a man should leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the, one, and the two will become one flesh? We have a, a habit, moderns do, of talking about biblical writers like they've got an inherent religious genius or something. The theology of Paul, or the theology of John, or Paul says. We want to be really careful with that, right? Paul does say, um, this is word of God. The living, active voice of God, right? In the gospel of Luke. Right, the gospel according to Luke, which is the word of God. <clears throat> One thing we don't want to say when we talk about the Spirit superintended, uh, superintending action is ever that the Spirit overrides or undermines human authors, right? So think with me about this. As, as the Spirit brings about Scripture and the Spirit's deeply related to Scripture, we'd never want to have an understanding of the superintendence of Scripture where it's like, you know, Paul goes into and something that looks like a you know, uh, grand mal seizure, falls on the ground, froths at the mouth, wakes up hours later, and he's covered in ink, and he's got a letter to the Galatians laying on him. Where did this come from? Right? I must have done this when I was you know, out of myself of sorts. The scripture never talks about um, a superintendence like that. Why do you think that's important? Why do you think it's really theologically important? Deeply so. It's huge, right? Scripture is a fully divine, fully human book, right? So the, the theology of the Word of God inscripturated has parallels and profound ones, right, with the Word of God incarnate. This Word of God incarnate, fully human, fully divine. This Word of God inscripturated, fully human, fully divine. It's telling us something profound about the way in which God works. He doesn't override human authors yet, or humanity. God takes humanity up into his life and mission, right? You see that in the incarnation. You see it with scripture. You see it in the life of the church. The, by the way, the church is a divine human reality, right? The church isn't just a you know, human institution, right? You, you can't get at the church just by way of anthropology. 
The church is a divine human reality. This, this is, you'll see this all over, all the way through scripture, but it's huge here. God never under, undermines or overrides humanity, but actually invites humanity into collaboration, and this is true of scripture too. Fully divine, fully human reality. Scripture superintends human authors so that scripture is the, the, the language of the spirit. Right? This, is, this is the way the Spirit speaks, and we learn, we learn the movement and action and ministry of the Spirit this way. At the same time, the Spirit's the power of Scripture. Right? The, one, the, the, the one who is the divine author of Scripture doesn't bring about Scripture and then go into semi-retirement, but he remains that one who vivifies Scripture. Right? His ministry is, is where Scripture is. The Spirit makes ongoingly makes the teaching of God's messengers in Scripture living, powerful, able to penetrate and illuminate and change hearts, right? Think with me about, I have the text here, but I'm just going to talk through it for time's sake. Paul goes to Corinth. One of the things, Corinth has lots of problems. They're a lot like us, actually. Wow. Um, but one of the things is they have questions about the legitimacy of Paul and his, apo- his apostolic calling, right? So Paul goes to Corinth and he says, um, I didn't come um, with erudite words. I didn't, I didn't come with a display of my own brilliance. And by the way, he had it to display. But he said, I didn't do that. I came in weakness and I came in trembling and I came in timidity. Um, and I came with a principled um, insistence upon knowing nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's really important, right? What, he, what he's getting at is my, my ministry is cruciform like Christ's ministry is cruciform. So he says he comes and he preaches, right? And he says through a powerful display and demonstration of the Spirit, what happens? The Corinthians come to have profound encounters with the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Paul will go on in 1 Corinthians 7 and say, some of you were X, Y, and Z. You aren't anymore. You've been profoundly changed. Right? You've been washed. You've been transformed. You've come to know Jesus Christ. You've passed from death to life through the preaching, right? Um, through the, the foolishness of God and the weakness of God, as he says, you know, the, this treasure entrusted to earthen vessels that the light shines out of the darkness. Um, you have come to know God, and as you do that, my apostolic ministry is validated. Now think about that, how that plays out, and how, how we in the church handle right, what, what is Scripture, right? And one way you could say it's the apostolic preaching, right? It's the kerygma. Do we go into the world with slick arguments for Scripture so that we can say, now it's okay for you to believe in Jesus? That's exactly what Paul said. I I'm principally opposed to doing that. I will not do it. But in the powerful demonstration of the Spirit, the apostolic preaching is confirmed, affirmed, right? Because what happens? Because in the preaching, right, the Spirit brings to bear the living presence of Jesus Christ, and Scripture is confirmed this way. Does that make sense? We'll talk more about that next week. But that's the way Scripture is confirmed. You guys know it in your own life, especially if you're 
you know, if you had a few years on you and you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, the thing that ends for you, all the buts about Scripture, and Scripture's a hard book, <laughs> the thing that at the end of the day ends the buts, or if you say something like this, Lord, speak, I hear you, even if your words are so hard for me. They're so hard for me. Um, they mortify me. Um, speak and I will hear you. What brings that about? Living acquaintance with the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? When Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, what makes Peter say? Okay, I'm going to follow him. That, that really shook me up. I'm not, I'm not quite even sure yet what that means. I'm going to keep following. I'm going to live forward into this, and I'm going to learn backward, like Kierkegaard says. I'm going to do that. <clears throat> the Spirit speaks in and through the words of Scripture so that his ministry to us isn't to render Scripture superfluous or redundant, or we might even say regressive, right? If we live in the Spirit, um, it's not a regressive thing, um, a, pr a, a provincial thing, a, like a fundamentalist thing, a duddy thing to live and love Holy Scripture. The Spirit renders Scripture clear and powerful and effective, but not redundant and not superfluous. That's the ministry of the Spirit. Right. That was a big thing at the Reformation, by the way, with, with some movements of the Re Reformation. Now that we live in this, this, this movement of the Spirit, we live by the Spirit, and the Spirit moves us into all kinds of places where we now, the Spirit speaks over and beyond and contradictory to Scripture itself. Scripture's, a, scripture's for ordinary folk, right? But spiritual elites, um, they live beyond Holy Scripture. The, the people in the know do that. The Spirit acts as a floodlight, a floodlight. He speaks in and through the words of Scripture, not to draw attention to himself, but to make Scripture the living, acting word of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at, look at John real quickly. We don't have a ton more time, but we got five minutes, Eddie? Five, six minutes? Upper Room Discourse. By the way, look at this. Upper room discourse, it's full of tension, it's full of fear, it's full of confusion. Jesus thinks it's a good time to just launch into Trinitarian theology. <laughs> when, do you, when do you do good theology? Um, at, the end, at, at the edge of the abyss, you do it there. I want to show you a couple texts in which Jesus is talking about the ministry of the Spirit. In John 14, 26, he says, These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Paraclete, the Holy Spirit, who the Father will send in my name. Make sure you see that. Jesus comes in the name of the Father, in the authority of the Father, to speak and do the will of the Father. The Spirit comes in the name of Jesus Christ to speak and do the will of Jesus Christ. And he will bring to remembrance all that I have said to you, all that I've said to you. Continuing this in this conversation, verse 26 of the next chapter. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness to me. He will be the ongoing um, witness to me. He will bring to bear my presence. Or 
next chapter, continuing, John 16. I still have many things to say. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will speak to you not on his own authority. I'm sorry. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. He will take what is mine, declare it to you. What is the Spirit's ministry relative to Scripture? Take what is Jesus Christ, declare it to us. In the power and presence of the Spirit, the Spirit doesn't bear witness to himself, but he bears witness to Jesus Christ in the domain of Holy Scripture. He does that. He's got a self-effacing ministry, by the way. The Spirit testifies to us that Scripture's true Word of God, right? He is the confirming, sealing action of will of God. He brings to bear the sheer beauty and glory of Jesus Christ so that Scripture isn't founded, by the way, our authority of Scripture isn't founded on slick arguments, but the powerful demonstration of the Spirit. That's true of us today. True of us today. He does that. I want to show you something. I want to show you a couple texts here. And we'll end. We'll, we'll pick up this last part. Um, we'll, we'll start here next week because I want to show you the way like people like Bonhoeffer talk about preaching. Um, is the word of God preached the word of God? Right? Is Jesus Christ continuing to speak and act in his church so that we might say something like this. When Christina hears um, the word of God proclaimed in the church, she is hearing Jesus Christ in as personal and intimate a way as Mary Magdalene did at the empty tomb on the first Easter Sunday. Can we say that? And that's exactly what you want to say, right? It's exactly what you want to say. So it's not like we're, we're, we're recounting and reminiscing about um, things that happened long ago, but Jesus Christ is in the present ministering to us in this way, profoundly personal ways. Let me just pick up on point D here. The Spirit doesn't convince us by esoteric information or even mystical experience, so to speak, but by the searching, transforming power of Scripture in our midst. Let me show you just a couple of texts. I want you to see this, and then we can, we can be done for today. But look at 1 Corinthians 1. It's really, or 1 Thessalonians, rather. You guys know how Paul speaks about the Thessalonians, their, their nobility in their hearing of the Word of God. But listen to this. Chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received Word of God, right, the apostolic preaching, when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, not as the mere Word of Paul, Silas, Peter, Mark, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. So what is the, what is the, the theology of hearing the Word of God, if you will? Um, first of all, you don't want to hear pastors and teachers primarily. You don't want to hear prophets and apostles primarily. But the art of hearing the Word of Scripture is to learn to hear, listening, right? You learn to hear the voice, right? My sheep hear my voice. 
Paul says to the, Thess- to the Thessalonians, you receive the word of God for what it is, word of God. Not my, my, not my religious genius or something like that, but word of God. Look at Hebrews 4. In verse 12, for the word of God is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul, spirit, joints, marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, right? The place where even your most intrepid, honest self-analysis falls short. Word of God gets there, right? Sorts you out, plums our depths. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him. Right? No creature is hidden from his sight. Who is the word of God? Is it the word of God that the book of Hebrews is talking about Moses and the prophets? Yep. Is it the, uh, the, the preaching, the kerygma of the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews? Yep. What's the end of this? No creature is hidden from his sight. Right? That one. All are exposed and laid open to him to whom we must give an account. Jesus Christ present in his word. Present. We should stop. I want to make another point, but we should, let's stop there. And then if you will, you guys bring this next time. I have, I have um, some pretty cool quotes here from Augustine and Luther and Bonhoeffer about what it means for the word of God to be living, acting, present, right? In the preaching of the word, what happens when in the ongoing ministry of the church, human authors proclaiming word of God, can we say, I'm hearing the living voice of Jesus Christ in the preaching, right? Bonhoeffer says, if the, if the logos doesn't seize upon human logos, then the church is broken, right? So we'll talk about that. Um, scripture with relation to the church, and then talk about uh, a theology of ministry, what it means to proclaim the word with confidence, right? And um, unapologetically, rightly so, unapologetically, so we're not going into the world arguing about Scripture, but proclaiming Scripture. This is a big difference, right? Go into the world and teach all that I've commanded you, rather than go into the world and argue about everything, right? It's quite a difference, and it has to do with the kind of confidence we have with the Word of God. Amen.